Uh, we'll take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be uh, addressing verse 10 again. And as you're turning there, some of you may or may not know this, but I'm not the handiest of guys. <laughs> uh, home ownership has brought out the fact that I'm not handy in any way. I try to do various home projects. Some are successful. Others are not so successful. Uh, Chris has experienced some of those <laughs> with me. <laughs> Always fun. Uh, and a few weeks ago, I was trying to be handy, and so I thought I'd change the brakes on one of the girls' cars. It doesn't end with anyone's death or a fiery crash, don't worry. Uh, but if you've ever changed brakes before, you know it's not actually that difficult of a project. Uh, you take the wheel off, and you pull off the old brake pads, put on the new brake pads, recompress the caliper, slide it on, pretty simple. It's only three bolts, uh, very simple. Um, but compressing the caliper is usually a relatively doable task. But this caliper that I was changing was pretty stiff, and so I tried a bunch of different tools that I had in the garage, and I, and I worked and worked at it, and after about 45 minutes, I, I couldn't feel my hands anymore, and I couldn't do it. I could not get this caliper to recompress. Finally, I got on YouTube to see if there was an easier solution, and sure enough, there's a tool that every auto parts store carries that compresses it for you. And so I sent Sarah, she picked it up at the auto parts store, brought it back, and the whole job was done in five minutes. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because it highlights the importance of having the right tool to do a job. You have to have the right tool to do a job. In many ways, this is part of the process of sanctification for us as Christians. As a, as a true believer, I think there are many sins that we continue to commit. We still sin, we fail. And there are many sins that we want to fight, and yet we don't have the right tools to fight the sin that we want to stop. Maybe you've been here before, you've made vows to never sin again in certain ways, or all sorts of accountability, or various other tools to make war against sin, but we find ourselves sinning again because we don't have the right tools in hand, and so we start to despair. And if you remember from last week, when we looked at the book of 1 John, chapter 4, verse 10, I told you this is one of the most important verses in the New Testament because what it does is it puts the tool for sanctification into your hand. Uh, that's why it's so important. It puts the tool for change into our hands. And now look at the verse again with me, and let's read it together. John says, "'In this is love.'" Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And what I want to do is review again what we covered last week and then apply that verse to a list of other sins and see how the Bible uses the concepts in 1 John 4.10 to help us fight a whole host of different sins. So look at me at point one, review. Now again, We've already seen that the only way to obey God is by loving Him. That's the only way to actually obey Him. Jesus said Himself in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If then statement, if love is in your heart for Christ, you will obey Him. And that should make sense to us, I think, even practically, because if we love someone, we want to serve them. So Jesus has given us the means by which to obey all the commandments of the Scripture, and the root of all obedience is love. And of course, again, that makes sense to us biblically, because what is the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, he says, or it flows from it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
So love is the root of all sanctification. Love for God is the root of all change you ever want to make in your life as a believer. It isn't personal effort. It isn't fear or discipline. It is love that changes us. Now, of course, discipline and effort and fear can all play a part in that process later, but the core of all obedience, the centerpiece of all obedience is love. But the problem is what? We don't love God. We don't. And this brings us to point A, heart change, heart change. How do I get my heart to love God? That's the deep question. How do I move myself so that I love God and not the thing that my heart is being pulled towards, some sin? How can I make my affections towards someone or something move that I don't naturally love in my flesh? How do I get myself to change? And that should be pretty disconcerting at some level, I think. We should hear that and be concerned because what God is commanding us is 100% impossible for us to accomplish in our flesh. Hear that. Your sanctification is 100% impossible for you to accomplish in your flesh. It isn't just that you can do a decent job with the small sins and then sometimes you need His help for the big ones. I think we sort of think of the Christian life that way. That's not true. We need God to help us in every aspect of our sanctification. And in fact, God demands in the Scripture that we obey Him from the heart. You remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? He said, this people honors me with their lips. They say the right things, but their heart is far from me. And then He says what? In vain do they worship me. Their worship of me is empty because it's just lip service. It's not actually coming out of their heart. They don't actually love me, and therefore their service is not true. And so the question is, how do we move our hearts? How do I get my heart to love God? And this is where John is so helpful for us. It's so helpful. It's amazing, actually. Because what he tells us in verse 10 is what? Look what he says. He says, in this is love. Here's love. Here's how you get to John. Here's John Buck. Here's how you get your heart to move. In this is love. Not that we love God. Here's how you get your heart to move. It's not you, which is hugely helpful because I'm finding that I can't get my heart to move. So how do I get my heart to move? John says, you can't do it. And then he says this, not that we love God, but what? That he loved God us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How do I move my heart to love God? I can't, but God can. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In in other words, God's love for me is the way that I move my heart to love God. If John the Apostle were in the room with us and we sat him down and had a Q&A with him and we said, John, help us here. How do we get our hearts to love God? John would chuckle and he would say, John Buck, you're not getting it. You don't move your heart. God moves your heart. It isn't that I love God, it's that God loved me and he sent his son to be the proof and power of that love by becoming the wrath bearer for my sins. He took my wrath that I deserve off of me and he took it onto himself. All my sin, all my guilt, all my failure, my hell has been taken off of me entirely and placed on Christ. 
So it is the love of God that moves my heart, and my need at any moment is not to get my heart to love, but to what? To get my heart to believe that God loves me. That's what I have to do. And that makes all change root in faith. Belief that God loves me is the means by which I can change. And that's the key tool for all heart change. But then how does that work? And this is point B, love produces obedience. The love that God has for us gives us access into the throne room of God in his grace through the gospel. And in that, we see the glory of God. We see it. And that's the key to the whole puzzle. The key to the whole puzzle about changing our hearts to love God, the key to the whole puzzle about moving ourselves so that we obey is that God grants us access into his presence because he loves us. This is what Paul meant when he talked about walking by the Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, right? He says, we do not have the spirit of slavery, but we've been given the spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption. And then he says that we have the spirit of God who is testifying to us, witnessing to us in our hearts. He's testifying to us that we are children of God. The spirit of God is constantly telling you all the time that you are God's beloved child. And that is the love of God for you. So what is the Spirit doing in your heart at any moment as a Christian? At any moment, the Spirit is telling you, witnessing to you, testifying to you, communicating to you all the time, God is your Father. He loves you. He sent His Son to die for your sins. He cares for you. He has mercy for you. That's what the Spirit is telling you all the time. Now, our problem is that we don't always listen to the Spirit, (laughs) but that's what the Spirit is telling us. And how did that love get onto us? Through the death of Christ. Romans 8, 1, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus died for us, God loves us, and therefore we are safe in Him because He is our Heavenly Father. And we know this. If we walk by the Spirit we will not carry out the desires of the flesh, right? If you walk by the Spirit, you're not gonna sin. Galatians 5.16. So Paul says, how do you walk by the Spirit? By trusting that God loves you, by believing the promises of God for you. And the New Testament uses these phrases interchangeably. It talks about the trusting of the love of God the Father for you. You believe that reality. It talks about walking in the Spirit, which is trusting the love of God, which the Spirit is testifying to you all the time. It talks about seeing the glory of God by faith. All of those are synonymous. And when these things happen in our hearts, when we believe that God actually loves us, our hearts fill with the fruit of the Spirit. What do we have then? We have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of that is coming out of us, and it's not us. It's the fruit, not of John. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit has told me that God loves me, and what comes out of my heart is the fruit that the Spirit produces. So this is what sanctification is, and obedience becomes the natural byproduct of our hearts. So that's the general how-to, okay? Uh, that's, that's, not, that's a quick summary of the reality of sanctification. That's the general how-to. 
But what about some specific sins? So we want to talk about some specific sins that we need to fight, and this is point two, fighting specific sins. So we're going to look at four categories of sins that we can commit and how God's love for us functions to move us away from those sins and toward righteousness, okay? Four categories of sins that we can move away from and move toward righteousness as we're trusting the love of God. So the first one we look at is a one, one that I personally find very difficult for me to fight, and that's anger. Anger, point A. Now, I, I struggle with being angry. I do. And I want to know what happens in my heart that causes me to be angry. That's what I want to understand. Like, and, and how does the love of God change me so that I'm not angry anymore? And the Bible gives us an answer for this. Look at the book of James. James chapter 4. Is it me or is there like feedback? It's me? There's feedback? Can you guys turn the gain down a little bit? It's like weird, like up here it's very loud. I don't know if it's loud out there. Can you turn it down a little bit? Thank you. Okay, so some specific sins. So we're going to look at anger, okay? James chapter 4, and look at James chapter 4 starting in verse 1, okay? James says this. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? So James asks an important question, right? What's the source of fighting? What's the root of fighting? It's anger, right? What's the source of anger in your life? And he gives us an answer. He says, is it not, is not the source your pleasures or your desires that wage war in your members? So in your flesh, you have fleshly desires that are causing you to be angry, well, what do you mean, James? <clears throat> well, he actually tells us. Look at verse 2. He says, you lust and you do not have. You desire and you don't have it, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What's he saying? He's saying all anger is rooted in what? Unfulfilled desires. You want something, you don't get it, and so you get angry. That's what all anger is rooted in. And I think you'd probably agree that that's basically true. Uh, anytime you're angry, it's usually re the result of you wanting something that isn't coming to you. Like, for example, we want respect, right? But we don't get respect from spouse, kids, employer, employee. And so what do we get in our hearts when we don't receive the respect that we feel we deserve? We get angry, right? Or we want good driving on the freeway. And we're driving to work, and we're good drivers, but we're surrounded by not good drivers. And we want good driving, but we don't get it, and so we find ourselves, by the time we get to work, we're furiously angry because we want something, we're not getting it. Or if you're a parent, you want silence, and you don't get silence, you know. And so what happens? You get angry right? Or we want success. We don't get success for something. And we get angry because we don't get the thing that we want. That's what all anger is. And just to be clear, anger isn't just explosive anger, right? You might be the type of person who's not an exploding angry person, but you can still be angry with that latent bitterness that just seethes inside of you all the time because you don't get what you want. You can be totally quiet and still be furiously angry. 
So James says, this is what is the cause of that anger. You want something and you don't get it. So what's his answer for this? Look at the end of verse 2. Look what he says. This is fascinating. He says, you do not have, why? Because you do not ask. Now, that's a stunning sentence, actually, when you think about it. That, that should like, shock us, right? The implication of that is, if you ask for something, you'll get it. So don't get angry, just ask. That's the answer. He's saying, look, just ask God. He will happily give you what you ask for. Now, now obviously, there's a caveat there, right? Because maybe you say, God, I want silence. Give me silence. I have six kids. It's not going to happen. So what's happening there inside my heart, right? That's the caveat that, J- that James puts into the next verse. Look at verse 3. He says, you ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives so that you can spend it on your pleasures. In other words, you're not asking for the glory of God. You're asking for yourself, for your own selfish desires. And so notice what James is arguing for here. Listen to his argument. He says, you get angry because you don't get what you want. You don't get what you want because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask with selfish motives. So James's argument is this. He's saying, if you ask God for something, he will give it to you if it's good for you. And if it's not good for you and you've asked for selfish reasons, he will not give you what you ask for. If you ask for something to spend on your own passions, your own desires, your own cravings, he's not going to give you that. So what's the implication? What's he saying? What James is saying is that God is always giving you good gifts. If the answer to your request is yes, it's a good gift. If your answer to your request is no, it's a good gift. God is always caring for you. Ask him. Don't get angry. Don't sin in anger. Trust God and ask God and he will give you what you need. And that's based on Romans 8.32, right? What does Paul say, Romans 8.32? If you don't have this verse memorized, I would highly encourage you to memorize this verse. Romans 8.32, he says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, the one who didn't protect his son, he delivered him over, that word is the word used for execution. He handed him over for execution. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? In other words, God cares for you. So how does God's love help you in a moment of anger? Think of this. You realize that the very thing that's coming into your life, whether it's an angry spouse, a disobedient, dry, a, a disobedient child, a bad driver on the freeway, all of those things are from who? They're from Him. They came to you from Him. It's not an accident that someone cut you off on the five that morning. It's not an accident that there's no silence in your house. It's not an accident that there's complications relationally. All of those come from Him, and they are good gifts sent for your care. They're all coming from a God who loves you. It's hard to be angry when you get everything you want on Christmas morning, right? But God gives much better gifts than that, infinitely better gifts than that. And if we're trusting His love for us, then everything that comes into our lives is actually a gift from Him. We don't need to be angry. So that's the root tool for fighting anger. Now, there's lots more to be said about that. That's a very complex topic. Anger has all sorts of ways that our hearts can twist and turn and and fight. But the way to kill it at its core is to know that God loves you. That's how you kill anger at its core. So let's look at another one. This is point B, anxiety. 
anxiety. Now, I know everyone has some areas where they're anxious. All of us do. Maybe it's uh, circumstantial anxiety. Maybe it's social anxiety. Maybe it's anxiety over specific circumstances. But at its core, what is anxiety? What is it? Well, biblically, it's just a fear of the future, right? It's a fear of what's coming. It's a, anxiety is a fear of future things. So turn with me to Philippians 4 real quickly. And I just want to show you how Paul uses the love of God to counteract anxiety. Philippians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 4. And before, before we get to the text on anxiety here, I want to start just noticing what Paul, what Paul says in verse 4. Look what he says. He says, rejoice in the Lord when? Always. Again, I will say rejoice. So he says, at all times have joy in God, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Verse 5, he says, <clears throat> he says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. So he says, always be joyful and then always be gentle because God is close to you. In other words, be reasonable about your circumstances. Be gentle. God is near. And then he says, because of the nearness of God, what does he say? Look at the connection in verse 6. He says, be anxious for what? Nothing. So when Paul talks in the superlative, we should pay attention, right? Rejoice when? Always. Be anxious for what? Nothing. He's saying, this is how you live your life. Rejoice all the time. Have zero anxiety. And you say, Paul, come on. That's impossible. But he gives us an answer of how to do that, right? Look what he says. Be anxious for nothing, but in what? Everything. In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, that word for requests is a word that means strong requests, an intense desire, what are we requesting of God here? Literally anything, right? The request that Paul is talking about here is literally anything because Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, let your requests be made known to God. So in every point of life, when you have anxiety that comes into your heart, what should you do? Paul says, let your requests be made known to God. Requests are always something that we are asking for that we don't have. The things that we don't have that we want, Paul says, you have freedom to ask. Ask God for them. Anxiety is always forward-looking. It's always wondering what will come. Even over anxiety over past conversations. Any of you review conversations you've had in your mind later? Anyone do that? Yes? Some of you are like, no, I forget them in immediately. No. I think we do. We go back and we can review conversations we've had and we, we begin to think like, oh, I wonder if I said something. The anxiety that comes from that is actually an anxiety about the future. Because what you're actually thinking about is what will they think about me? Or how will this turn out based on what I said? And Paul says, no matter what you're anxious over, no matter what it is that you're fearing, make your requests about the future known to God. Tell God, this is my request that I have for you. 
And then look what he says in verse 7. He says, The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's God's peace that God has. And he says it's above any of your thinking or your manipulation for the circumstance. The peace here that Paul promises is based on something. I remember the first time I read this verse, I, I was thinking, okay, that's what I have to do. So I'm going to pray, and then the anxiety will go away. So I prayed, and the anxiety didn't go away. And I thought, what happened? There's something broken inside of me. So I prayed a second time, and the anxiety was still there. So what's going on? Well, there's actually a, a word in verse 6 that tells us how to deal with anxiety. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, and then what? With thanksgiving. Now, why is that so important? When you're making a request, you're requesting something in the future. Say, God, give me this thing that I long for in the future. Help me with whatever this is. God, this is my request of you. How can you give thanks when you're asking for something? That's sort of irrational. If your kids say, Dad, can I have dinner? Thank you. They don't know if I've said yes or no. If I say no, it makes no sense for them to say thank you. But Paul says, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. In other words, what is, Paul, what is the implication of what Paul is saying in that verse? What he's actually saying is, whether the answer is yes or the answer is no, be thankful. Why? Why? Because you know and trust that God loves you. He's for you. And his answer is always best. A no answer from God on your request is the best answer he could give you. And a yes answer from God on your request is the best answer he could give you. He always gives you the very best thing for you because he loves you. Taylor read it for us this morning. Look at Matthew chapter 6 with me real quickly. Matthew chapter 6. It's an amazing text. It needs literally almost no interpretation. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. I'm just going to read it for you again because it's a beautiful verse, a beautiful passage. He says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. That word for worried there, exactly the same word that Paul uses in Philippians 4, 6 for anxiety. Do not be worried about your life. As to what you will eat, your food, or what you will drink, how you'll survive, or for your body, your health, as to what you will put on, your clothes. It's, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Just look at the birds. They don't sow, they don't reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? You can't extend your life by worry. And why are you worried about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field. They grow. They do not toil or spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little what? Faith. Right? That's the answer. Do not worry then saying, what shall we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? The Gentiles seek all these things. Listen to this verse. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He knows. He knows all your needs. So seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. 
Each day has enough trouble of its own. What is Jesus saying? Don't worry. Why? God knows, and He's your heavenly Father. He loves you. Believe that. And that's it. So the love of God produces the peace of God that surpasses our own thinking in any circumstance. Now, again, just like with anger, it's incredibly complex, right? It's an incredibly complex topic. It roots into all sorts of different things. And there are lots of ways that our hearts can turn and move through this. But the tool for fighting anxiety is the love of God for you. Just like the tool for fighting anger is the love of God for you, the tool for fighting your anxiety is that God loves you and that He's your heavenly Father. Let's look at point C, greed or discontentment. Greed or discontentment. What is greed? Greed is a craving for wealth. And it's often found in Scripture paralleled with discontentment. Why? Because if you're discontent, you get greedy. And if you're greedy, it's because you're discontent with what you have. You don't feel like you have enough, and so you get greedy. Now, obviously, that's a sin. And in fact, in Ephesians 5, verse 5, Paul says that a greedy person, a covetous person, is an idolater. They're worshiping an idol. Greed is idolatry. It's the worship of money, of wealth, of possessions, of comfort, of security. That's what greed is. That's why Jesus said you can't love God and money at the same time because you're worshiping something. And you're going to worship either the one or the other. You don't have to have money to be greedy or idolatrous. In fact, often when you don't have money, you're more greedy or idolatrous about money. So how does the love of God fight this sin of greed and discontentment? How does that work? What's fascinating is the author of Hebrews actually ties these together explicitly. Look at Hebrews chapter 13 with me. Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verse 5. Hebrews 13, 5. The author of Hebrews says this. He says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. So, freed from the love of money. Don't, like, be, be certain that you're not loving money. And then he counteracts this, second phrase, being content with what you have. So, don't be greedy, be content. Why? Look at the last phrase. For he himself has said. So, God himself has told you this. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. How do you fight greed and discontentment? Knowing what? God's for me. He's not going to leave me. He's not going to forsake me. He is the one who can satisfy my soul, and He will never leave me. That's the argument of the author of Hebrews, and that's the argument of the whole of Scripture. In fact, look back with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Again, please turn to these texts. It's so important. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and what he's doing is using the church in Philippi as an example of good freedom of giving, of generosity. And look what he says in chapter 8, starting in verse 1. 
2 Corinthians 8.1, he says, Now, brothers, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, so they're, they're suffering, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. They had joy in their hearts, and it led them to be liberal with their finances. He says, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. More than they even could, they gave. He says, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. They gave themselves into the hand of God and they begged Paul, let us give more. That's what they were doing. They were generous. Look at verse 6. So he urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. In other words, you should give as well. And he says, verse 7, but just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love that we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work as well. In other words, keep giving. I'm not speaking this as a command, but proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. And then look what he says. He says, you give, you show your love, you show that you're sincere. Verse 9, for, why? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace of Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. In other words, what? He's not talking about financial wealth. He's talking about spiritual wealth. Jesus had all the spiritual wealth in the universe and he gave it so that you could receive the blessings of him. Why did he do that? Why did he come into the world and die for you? Because God loves you. That's why. And so Paul says, if you trust that, what Christ has done for you, then it will cause you to be generous. It will cause you to be content. It will drive greed out of your heart because it will satisfy you. Last one, look at Habakkuk chapter 3. An Old Testament text, Habakkuk chapter 3. It's in the crunchy section of the Minor Prophets. Habakkuk the prophet is writing and he's looking out over the plains to the east of Israel and he's waiting for the Babylonian conquerors to come and to destroy the city. He's waiting for the invasionary force to come and put the city to siege and to the sword. That's what he's waiting for. So put yourself in his shoes. He, he's really, I, he's in grave danger. And he says this in verse 17. Look what he says. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, every means of making wealth and every means of survival in terms of food is gone, is what... Habakkuk is saying, and then he says this in verse 18, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord. You take everything away, I'm going to rejoice in God. Why? I will rejoice in the God of my what? Say it out loud. Salvation. Habakkuk says, I'm going to rejoice in God because he saved me. You can take everything out of my life, all the things that I'm craving for, all the things that would even provide sustenance for me. Everything can go away. Health, food, money, everything's gone. And he says, I'll still rejoice. Why? Because God has saved me. 
Look at verse 19. He says, The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet. He makes my feet, he makes me walk on my high places. In other words, he lifts me up above the things that are happening in the world. I walk on my high places. I experience him through my salvation. That's the prophet's logic. Even if nothing works for him, he'll rejoice in God because he is his savior. So the tool for fighting discontentment, the tool for fighting greed is knowing the love of the Father in your salvation. That's the way you fight it because it's the only thing that will truly satisfy your soul. And last one is point D, addictions. Addictions. This is the final issue that I want to address and that's these life-dominating sins. Addictions can range over all sorts of things, can't they? Some of them are sinful, like addictions to drugs or pornography. And some are almost innocuous, like an addiction to reading the news, right? We can be addicted to all sorts of things, alcohol, entertainment, exercise. All of those things can become life-dominating. You can become addicted to all sorts of things. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful, but I will not be controlled by anything. In other words, an addiction to something is actually a sin, So how does God's love free us from life-dominating addictions? How does God's love free us from that? Well, at the end of the day, let me ask you this. What creates an addiction? What creates an addiction? Think about it. Ultimately, the thing that creates an addiction is a desire for happiness. That's what it is. You're actually seeking happiness and The addiction offers you a taste of happiness. You think that one more episode, one more episode, one more episode, and I'll I'll be happy. One more soda, one more slice of dessert, one more drink, one more click, and I'll be happy. And the tricky part is that those things do give you happiness for a moment. But then those things, what do they do? They evaporate, don't they? The moment of happiness evaporates, and what do you receive instead? Sorrow, guilt, heaviness of heart. And instead, those sins and those desires and those cravings don't satisfy you. They leave you craving for more, and you end up more sad than when you started. But the love of God is not like that. The love of the Father isn't like that. It's exactly the opposite. It brings joy that continually satisfies us. You know this. If you're here and you're a believer, you know this. When you first came to Christ, the the day you got saved, when you understood the gospel, and the day you got saved and you saw the glory of Christ, you knew that he loved you, what happened in your heart? Joy, happiness, I remember I thought, I'll never sin again. This is amazing. And like 48 hours later, I was like, okay, once, but never again. Not even 48 hours, like an hour. And you see it and it satisfies your soul, but then what happens? You find yourself again and again stumbling. And then you stumble again and you start to feel guilty. And you start to wonder, how could God love someone who sins again and again in the same way? 
Because we think of ourselves and we would never love someone who continually sinned against us over and over again. We would never continually offer them forgiveness. And so we find ourselves buried in guilt and shame and sorrow. And in all of that guilt and shame and sadness, you turn back to the addiction again and the cycle doesn't break. So how do you stop that? The tool that helps you destroy that is to know that God loves sinners. It breaks that. Why? Because sinners, even sinners who commit the same sins again and again and again, God loves them. And he's demonstrated that love personally and perfectly at the cross. Romans 5.8, what does he say? I assume you know it by heart. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. When did Jesus die for you? While you were yet a sinner, before you ever had any thought of guilt over sin, before there was ever a moment when you thought to yourself, I I shouldn't do that, but I find myself struggling, before you ever wrestled in your heart against sin, Christ loved you and he died for you. If he loved you and he died for you then, certainly he loves you. Now, your sins are forgiven. That's how you wage war against addiction. Because when you know that God loves you and that nothing will change that reality, even when you sin and fail, your heart fills up with safety and joy and protection and hope. And what that gives you is satisfying joy that trounces anything else that the world would want to offer you to give you happiness. You don't need dessert. You have Jesus. Right? So that's four sins. (laughs) That's four sins. This works for all sins because Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two depend what? All the law and the prophets. In other words, all sanctification will flow from the love of God to you. So if you're waging war with the sin, and I didn't mention it here, think, how does God's love fix this in me? How does God's love satisfy me to change this so that the sin loses its power in my life? How? And then read your Bible and find answers for that question. So, this brings us to point three, clinging to God. The final question is actually a simple one, and that's the question of how. In some ways, we already started there, but how do we take hold of these truths in a moment of temptation and wage war against sin? How do you pick up the right tool when you're trying to fix the brakes? How do you know? And this brings us back to something that you may or may not remember, and if you don't, that's okay. It's an acronym. It's ART, except with two T's. A-R-T-T, okay? If you don't take notes, that's fine, but I would highly encourage you to remember these four things, okay? Four things. The art of fighting sin, but with two T's. Let's say you're tempted with anger, okay? Or you're tempted with anxiety, you're tempted with greed and discontentment because your life isn't fair. You're tempted with addiction. You want to go back to something. What do you do to fight that temptation at that moment? What do you do? 
Now, in your conscience, if you're a believer, you know you shouldn't get angry. You know it. You know you shouldn't be anxious. You know you shouldn't turn back to that addiction. You know you shouldn't be discontent. And you feel that in your heart, and you feel guilty. Now, the temptation in that moment is to say, I've got to fight that sin. And that's good. The problem is, where did that sin originate? In you. So how are you going to fight the thing that you're doing? So how do you fight it? Well, the first thing you do, the A in art, is you admit that you really are that bad. You admit that you really are as evil as the desire that's in your heart at that moment, as the temptation that seems to hold out hope for you. You admit, not to yourself, but to God. Say, Lord, I really am this wicked. I really want to get angry. I really want to commit road rage. I really want to wallow in my anxiety. I really want to be discontent and, and feel tons of self-pity because I don't have what somebody else has. I really want to do this. This is who I actually am in my flesh. And you confess that sin. You admit that it's true. Now, just to be clear, this takes a moment of lucidity, right? Because temptation, when you're in a moment of temptation, it's like you're surrounded by clouds, like fog, and it's hard to see through. But in that moment, when the Spirit convicts your conscience, what do you do? You admit it. This is true of me, Lord. I, this is who I actually am right now. I, I'm pursuing this sin. It's what I want in my flesh. It's not what my Spirit wants, but it's what I want in my flesh. Then what do you do? Confess to God. Say, God, this is who I am. Then what do you do? What's the R? You remember. What do you remember? Lord, I really am this bad, but I remember what? I remember the gospel. I remember that you love me, that you sent your son to die on a cross for my sins, that you paid the price even for this sin that I'm tempted to do right now. And even if I were to do it, you would still forgive me for that sin. You remember that Jesus died for you and that God loves you as a heavenly father. Now, to remember that, you have to know what? Verses. <laughs> it can be Romans 5.8. It can be 1 John 4.10. It can be Galatians 2.20. You've got to know verses because you've got to grab onto truth. So you remember. Now, I, I use R because I like the word art. But what is remembering truth? What is that? What's the biblical word for that? It's faith. It's believing. Believing what the Bible says about God's heart for you at that moment, right then, that He loves you. And that moment of trusting God's love and forgiveness of you, what does it do when you realize that God loves you, even in that moment of temptation, even though you are as wicked as that heart desire? You remember that God loves you and that He sent His Son to die for that sin. What does it do? It fills your heart with joy in Him because He loves you. Rather than sin, you find your joy in Him. Now you have power. You've picked up the tool, right? You have the tool. So what do you do? You turn from the sin. I don't need that. Yeah, my flesh craves that, but I don't need that. I don't want that. I want Him. He's better than that. And I know He's better than that because He loves me. 
And I turn away from my sin. And then I've turned away from my sin and, I, and I, I've overcome my temptation. And what do I do? Do I say, oh, I'm pretty godly. No, the last T, what is it? You thank him. He's the one who filled your heart with the Spirit in that moment. He's the one who showed you His glory and His love for you. He's the one who's done that work in you. Now, it doesn't mean that it goes away forever, right? Temptation can come back again and again and again. But once you've admitted and you've remembered, you've picked up the right tool. Now you can fight. Now, of course, this brings us to the source of faith. Where are you going to get faith? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from what? Hearing, and hearing from the Word about Christ. Go and seek the Word about Christ. There's another way that we hear. It's still the Word, but another way that we hear is through communion. We're going to take communion this morning. Communion is another means of hearing. What is communion? It's a corporate hearing, again, of what Christ has done for you. It's a corporate hearing. In fact, communion is actually a moment when God wants you to pause and remind yourself and remember the death of Christ for your sins. That's what he wants you to do in communion. In fact, that's what Paul says. He says we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In many ways, communion is like a love note from God that you get once a month. (laughs) First week of the month, Sunday, God sends you a note and he says, look, this this is my love for you. I sent my son to die for your sins, to be the propitiation for your sins. That's what God is doing. And if Jesus died for you, if he bled on the cross and died for you, certainly he loves you. Certainly he does. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what communion is. The greatest most profound expression of love in human history, and we remind ourselves of it every month because God wants us to remember. So we're going to take communion, and my appeal to you is to remember God's love for you in the fact that he would send his son to die for your sins, that all your sins are forgiven. Think of that. Just think of that. All your sins forgiven, past, present, and future, off of you. They were on Christ. It's done. He's already died. He's already been raised again. It's finished. The work is finished for you in Christ. There's no condemnation for you because of what Christ has done. God loves you. He loves you. Remember that. I've told you this before, but I remember as a child, I remember the communion plate passing down the aisle. And I was trying to confess every sin that could possibly come to mind before the plate got to me. So I'm watching it come out of one side of my eye, and I'm like, I know I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. I'm trying to get through all the sins so I can take it in a worthy manner. That's not what Paul's saying. You are a sinner, and you need a Savior, and communion is you have one. The work is done in Christ. He's died for your sin. Trust him. Trust him. Receive again the death of Christ on your behalf. Believe again that Jesus loves you, that he died for your sins, and all of them are paid, past, present, and future. Rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Trust that God loves you.
And that's why communion is for Christians. <laughs> if you're here and you're not a Christian, please don't take communion. It's not for you. It doesn't remind you of anything because you don't know him. So instead of taking communion, do the art for the first time. Admit that you are a sinner, that you're a wicked person, that you've sinned against a holy God who rightfully deserves to send you to hell. Confess your sin to him and then trust that Jesus died for those sins and that he loves you. And then come back the first week of March and take communion with us as a believer. And as a parent, please, Exercise oversight over your kids. If your kids are in the service and they don't know Christ or you don't have confidence that they know Christ, don't let them take communion. So again, this is God's statement of love to you. Receive it by faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your son. Lord, in all the complexities of life and all the sufferings and all the sin that comes into our hearts, Lord, it would be so easy for us to doubt, to doubt that you love us. And Lord, you would be right to not because we've sinned and fallen short of your glory in so many ways. But Lord, your thoughts are not our thoughts and your ways are not our ways. You are higher than we are. Lord, you love unconditionally people who do not deserve to be loved, people like us. So, Lord, this morning, I pray that you would help us to remember the love of Christ. Help us to remember that Jesus bled and died on our behalf, that his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us. Help us to remember that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are paid in full and that we are completely safe in you and in your glory because of what Christ has done. Lord, we carry with us his perfect righteousness at all times. Lord, that there is no condemnation from you for us because we are in Christ. Lord, help us to remember and to believe this, to trust in you, to lean on you, to depend on you and what you've done for us in him. Lord, may we believe that you love us because you sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning and who don't know you. Lord, even if they've taken communion a thousand times as unbelievers, I pray that you would show them that they're not a good person, that they are an evil person, and that your standard is perfection that you will call them to an account when they die. Lord, cause them to see their need for a Savior. Cause them to trust in the free gift of salvation through Christ. Lord, we bless you. We thank you for him. Lord, may he be glorified even now as we trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.